Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 46, recorded on March 25th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you, and it's good to start with a bit of news that makes me smile. WebOS is not dead yet. What? WebOS? That OS from many, many years ago is not dead, and there's an open source edition now. That can't be right, can it? It is, and it's perfect. It's perfect. For some reason, it's just a little OS that won't go away. As you know, it's been bumped around a bit by HP and then over to LG, and now LG wants to expand the adoption of WebOS, and the company is working with the South Korean government to solicit business proposals to figure out how they might want to use WebOS. Did you ever have one of the HP touchpads back in the day then? Yeah, for a limited time, for a couple of months, I played around with one before I gave it away as a gift, and I loved WebOS. I even got to play for a couple of months with a Pre. Do you remember the uh, Palm Pre? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it was a long time ago. But really, they were ahead in a lot of ways. Now, this is the WebOS open source edition, so it's not quite what you and I knew. Uh, and it's currently aimed at developers. There's an SDK available as well as instructions for building the OS and even running it on a Raspberry Pi 3. Which is what I did today. No! I, I Oh, man, I almost got in a, I, I, I tried to do this before the show, Joe. I, I got my Raspberry Pi set up, and I had a total SD card failure, and I wanted to try it. And I, th- I, figured, I figured Joe must have done this. So tell me about it, because I was so close, Joe. I got it flashed on the SD card. I got it put in the Raspberry Pi. I got it hooked up to power and a mouse and a keyboard and my screen. And then I went to boot it, and I got nothing. Oh, right. Well... Did you build it yourself, though? Because that's the only instructions that are on the website that you have to build it and you have to get clone and all the rest of it. But I went and found a pre-built image because I was not in the mood to wait four hours for it to build on my laptop. Yeah, that's what... (laughs) That's exactly what I did. In fact, I'll include an extra bonus link in the show notes, Linux Action News, episode 46. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash 46. I got a link in the show notes just after the news for the story. But uh, maybe these images don't work because it is the one I tried and I got nowhere. Yeah, well, it worked for me. It took a little while to boot up, but it was very limited once you get it. Uh, booted yeah if you look in the article that we've linked to there's only one app really youtube which kind of worked for the video but the audio was all stuttery and just didn't work properly what about well there's a web browser what about the web browser the web browser wasn't in the version that i had oh for some reason okay so i didn't get to check that out but otherwise it was just as the web os open source edition website really with just all the info about how to get involved with it and this is very very much aimed at developers at this stage it's not a a user facing a user ready daily driver any of that it's it's for developers to hack on and companies who want to put it on devices yeah at this point you get the launcher support for notifications and a couple of basic system apps like system settings and there is supposedly a modified version of chromium on there so you got it closer than i did i gave it a go did not get that far but it doesn't sound like i missed much yet so it's early days it sounds like yeah but it was very slick what i saw of it everything worked quite well with little animations and everything it wasn't stuttering it wasn't locking up and stuff it seemed for this really bare bones os 
to actually be pretty solid. So I've I've got quite a lot of hope for it if people can add the applications to it. But that's the thing. They don't call it web OS for nothing. All of it's based on HTML technologies and CSS and everything. And haven't we seen that before with Firefox OS? And that really didn't go anywhere, did it? Yeah, if you're just looking for web apps, I don't think it's going to be a winner. But if you're looking for an operating system to empower your Internet of Things device and you don't want to have to create some sort of complicated relationship with Google, this I could see actually being a possible market for WebOS Open Source Edition. And I believe that's why the South Korean government sort of putting feelers out there right now saying, hey, if you got Google concerns, we've got this other Linux-based OS, same kind of internals that you're all kind of hot and bothered about, but totally different licensing and totally different company. Don't worry, it's LG. Just those aspects alone could make it appealing. I mean, that's what Canonical was coming at when they were developing Ubuntu Touch, is they were another Linux-based OS that wasn't Google. Yeah, and this seems to be this backlash, isn't there, that people don't trust Google and they, they want to get away from Android if they can. But with it being just ubiquitous, it's very difficult to do so. So it's always good to see competitors in the space. Yeah, and keep in mind, there's a whole world of things that aren't necessarily mobile phones. There's televisions, there's toasters, there's wall plugs that just are Wi-Fi plugs that need to run some kind of operating system that's backed by some kind of company that's going to keep them secure. Yeah, well, as we all know, if you've got an Internet of Things device, you're definitely going to want to run a hypervisor on it. Well, in the era of big processors, multi-cores, and lots of RAM, maybe? That's what the Linux Foundation is hoping, and it's called Acorn. It's a hypervisor that's built with real-time and safety-critical operations in mind, with a huge chunk of code contributed by Intel. This is very much aimed at the automotive market, isn't it? Which is a bit strange because there's the automotive-grade Linux from the Linux Foundation. But they do stress that competition is good, and they do accept that there are various solutions here. Obviously, you've got Zen as a hypervisor, but that is relatively bloated compared to this new Acorn. They talk about how, yes, there are existing technologies that this is effectively competing against, but they say that that's a good thing and competition will drive innovation. Think of Acorn as positioned specifically for the automotive market, and then all of a sudden it starts to make sense why you'd want a specific hypervisor to meet those needs. You need certain scenarios to prioritize workloads when you're driving, like safety. So conventional hypervisors, they don't really do that. You can say give more memory to this application or this machine, but you need a hypervisor that is real-time aware, that can know when to starve the entertainment system of resources in order to ensure the driver's safety. And that's what we're dealing with here. Acorn addresses these issues by being small, first of all. The project claims it'll have just 25,000 lines of code compared to, say, over 150,000 lines of your most basic data center hypervisor. So number one, it's going to be a small project. But number two, it's going to be aware of the workloads that are on it specifically for embedded devices. Today, cars have several computers linked over the CAN bus system. But in the future, many cars already are being built this way, and many manufacturers are going this way. There will be a central computer, for better or worse, that runs everything. And the idea here, and there's a lot of companies like Intel that are backing this, is to run a hypervisor on that central computer and isolate the individual workloads. 
That arrangement would essentially mean fewer integration hassles and lower costs for automakers, and it also means that the hypervisor would be aware when safety-first issues need the priority versus you picking the next track on your MP3 files. It's funny, this future, isn't it? In the past, it was a case of if your car broke, you could get your friend who's quite handy to fix it, whereas now you want someone who's a programming expert to come and fix your car for you. There's no denying we're moving away from the Unix philosophy when it comes to automobiles. Instead of having dozens or maybe hundreds of individual systems and components that are specifically suited for their job and make the car run well, we're moving to a centralized monolith that will have isolated components dedicated to the different aspects of the car. I'm not sure which one's better. And it's good to see Linux and open source being at the forefront of this new way of doing things. I'd much rather the Linux Foundation was doing this than some other big company that doesn't care about open source. When it comes to problems front and center in your face, a lot of us have been experiencing issues with Gnome Shell recently, and there's been additional attention on this this week. I'll put it that way. Yeah, so Joey over at IMG Ubuntu has posted about this memory leak, which haven't you been talking about this for months and months and months with your OBS machine needing to be rebooted all the time? <laughs> it's been bad, yeah. It's been it's been ridiculous. In fact, anybody that's used Gnome Shell with some re- regularity has probably run into this particular problem. It really essentially begins when you first do something that creates an animation, like hitting the overview screen or all the applications. It just starts slowing down from there. One of the many reasons I don't like animations, but even so, it doesn't happen in Plasma and stuff, does it? No, no, it doesn't. It seems to be kind of related to how Gnome Shell is built, being single-processed, all kind of one process doing everything. And uh, Joey over at OMG Ubuntu sort of laid it all out. Gnome Shell, right out of the box, will typically consume somewhere around 70 megabytes of RAM. I mean, not bad, really, considering how much it does. However... That jumps to about 95 megabytes of RAM after opening a menu, and maybe 250 megabytes, depending, after you load, say, the icon grid of all applications with about 90 icons. And this will get worse if you have more extensions or more icons or more things happening with the GNOME shell. And this has somewhat been patched, but it doesn't seem to have quite worked. Yes. Now, there is a workaround, and Joey does mention it in the post here, and it's just simply to restart Gnome Shell. And you know how to do this. You hit Alt-F2, type in R, hit Enter, boom, Gnome Shell will restart. And you don't tend to lose application state, but it's very fiddly. Yeah, that's not really an acceptable fix, is it? Or at least it shouldn't be. And it's not the only bug that surfaced this week. There's also this um, performance bug relating to the clock, where... Just changing the digits of the clock um, causes slowdowns. I mean, you really wonder what is going on with GNOME Shell. I mean, I'm so happy I'm sitting here on XFCE. Oh, here we go. Of course, it's a moment (laughs) to talk about XFCE because there's no other desktop that can get this right. So this is really something, um, and I've noticed this myself, and the bug that we'll have linked in the show notes, again, linuxactionnews.com slash 46, calls it out. You may have noticed this too. If you went into the GNOME clock settings and turned on the show seconds, which I have done because I am on air and want to time things very precisely. So I've turned on the show seconds. I have it turned on in plasma right now. I'm looking at the seconds. It's a useful thing. And it turns out that involves a massive redraw of the entire desktop to iterate the second counter. And the bug doesn't go this far, but I have personally experienced every extension you have 
that is updating the UI is updating the entire UI because the GNOME shell is a single process. The entire desktop, from the extensions to the animations, it's all one process. And so I was in a point where I had, I love it, an extension that would tell me my ping milliseconds and an extension that would tell me the Bitcoin price and an extension that would tell me my CPU usage and I had the clock with the seconds displayed. Because I assumed in 2017, I could have a modern desktop. I was wrong. 2018 has been a year of learning for me. But 2017 was a year of being wrong. And what I discovered was every single extension I had that was updating my GNOME shell with current information, like the CPU, like the Bitcoin price, like my ping millisecond response time, like the seconds on my clock, were all dramatically slowing down my desktop to the point where my mouse cursor began to pause as I moved it around the screen. Suddenly your mouse turned into Shatner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had the William Shatner of mouse curses when I was on GNOME 3, and the only temporary fix was to disable the very extensions that I found made the shell usable. Well, come on, this isn't a huge problem. It's not like every single major distro is using GNOME at this point. (laughs) linuxacademy.com slash unplugged it's an advanced training tool that increases your skills and encourages critical thinking around everything that has to do with linux it's a full featured training library with everything you need to learn new skills and advance your career from azure down to how to build the file system outright it's a great resource with self-paced in-depth video courses on every linux and cloud and devops topic with hands-on scenario-based labs that give you real experience on actual servers that you get to ssh into which makes all of the difference for somebody like me. And if you ever get stuck, if you need help, they have full-time human instructors that are ready to help and advise you on your questions. And if life is busy, Linux Academy understands. They've got a course scheduler where you can pick a course and set a time frame to help fit your schedule and your learning goals. Now, I love a certain aspect of Linux Academy that I I failed to mention, and I want to mention it today. They have a flashcard system that is completely open source. It's something that's forked by the community. And using these flashcards help you remember what you learned because you're presented with the information in a different order every time. It just kind of comes at you randomly. And you can share the flashcards that have worked best for you and the whole deck if it's been a good deck. And use those cards and decks by yourself by the instructors and the students and mix and match them. It's a whole aspect of the community that I think really helps you prepare because people that go take the tests and pass them come back and share their experience and help you prepare. That's a great resource that nobody can touch. You combine that with the full-time human beings, the servers they spin up, and the endless content, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there, support the show, and sign up for a free seven-day trial. Nothing beats it. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. So it's been a bit of a bad week for Mozilla and Firefox, specifically with the master password, which it turns out for the last nine years has been using SHA-1 with an iteration count of one. So this is the master password that protects all of your saved logins, if you choose to enable it, of course. And it is very, very easy to brute force unless it is incredibly long. 
Yeah, this came out after the author of the Adblock Plus extension looked into this a little bit. He says, I looked into the source code and I eventually found the function that converts passwords into encrypted keys, and it's not nearly enough. Anybody who's designed a login function for a website will likely see the red flags here from about nine years ago. In fact, Mozilla themselves have had a bug against this since they implemented this this feature nine years ago. (laughs) Yeah, and using SHA-1 in the first place, I think it was a year or two ago, Google proved that you can have SHA-1 collisions, which basically renders it MD5 quality at this point. And to only do one iteration of it when kind of standard practice would be 10,000 or maybe 100,000, that is not good at all. It's What's the point if you're only going to do SHA-1 times 1? In the age of everyone having a GPU everywhere, it gets a lot easier to crack these. Yeah, you think they'd be using SHA-256 or something at this point. Um, but they've got a different plan to solve this instead, haven't they? Yeah, they're working on a couple of different plugins. And uh, there's a, a few in the fire right now. And one that seems to have the most promise is Lockbox. It's being developed by Mozilla as an extension. It is alpha quality right now. But it's a total replacement for the Firefox password manager. But really, who isn't using LastPass at this point? You know, I, as a longtime LastPass user, have recently become more and more frustrated with it. I would be interested in switching off, but I tried out Lockbox for the TechSnap program recently because we talked about this on TechSnap. Totally not there yet. Not ready. In fact, Mozilla hasn't even committed to Lockbox as the future master password extension. Yeah, you would have thought that Mozilla would have sorted this out by now. I mean, it's been long enough and they've got enough money slushing around. You think that they would have their own built-in competitor to the likes of LastPass. I know there are open source alternatives, but it'd be nice if there was something just baked into Firefox. I mean, they've got Pocket in there. (laughs) You know, maybe (laughs) before they did stuff like that, they should have thought about some security fundamentals. Yeah, I do think it's better to outsource this particular function. As Wes pointed out on TechSnap, it's not like Firefox has been built from the ground up to be a password manager. And maybe we shouldn't expect that from our web browsers, and we should offload that to a dedicated application. And so I like the idea of Lockbox or KeePass or LastPass. It's just picking the one that's best for you at this point. Yeah, but I'm always dubious of proprietary solutions, especially ones where they get their database dumped and leaked online. Hmm. Although that was a long time ago, let's not worry about that. But it's not the only Firefox story this week. There's also some changes possibly maybe coming uh, to how they deal with DNS queries. And this one's gotten a bit of pushback from privacy people as often happens with these kinds of announcements when they're doing something that involves sending your data to a third party. Now, Firefox is experimenting with a certain amount of test users with sending DNS lookups to a Cloudflare-hosted service, which means a third party that you did not configure your system to go to. Now, obviously, DNS is a pretty critical point to loading the websites and getting them to respond fast, and now more than ever, DNS seems to be getting screwed around with, manipulated as a form of attack, and DNS services are also sometimes just simply poorly provisioned creating performance problems. So Firefox thought they could solve this issue. (laughs) Yeah, and in theory, it sounds good, doesn't it? DNS over HTTPS so that it's properly protected. But why bring Cloudflare into it? Well, they're definitely a name brand, and they definitely have the services and the and the infrastructure to support something like this. I mean, think about Firefox's scale. Even with a small test, you're probably 
still dealing with hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million users. So you've really got to be able to handle that load. But the issue is that Cloudflare is a U.S.-backed company. But even as a user of Firefox, like Chris Double from New Zealand pointed out, even if it's only Mozilla's nightly browser and just for a short period of time, he's still disturbed at the possibility of an opt-out-only service sending all visited host names to a third-party U.S. company. That he's uncomfortable with. Yeah, and it is only in the nightly at the moment, but the nightlies tend to be where the features that end up in the main version go. So if this goes well for them, the chances are it probably will make it into the main Firefox. So I think it is right to be raising this as a red flag right now. But Mozilla do point out that they are only testing this and user feedback like this is valuable to them. So hopefully they will get the message and it will hopefully only be a few hundred thousand people or whatever, a small percentage of the nightly users who will ever have this happen to them, at least to have it be opt out. By all means, have it be opt in. And if you're happy sending all your DNS queries to Cloudflare, then good luck to you. But um, I don't think I'll be opting in. Thank you very much. I do understand where Mozilla is coming from because they have to compete with Google, who can afford to accelerate all kinds of things server-side, even offer to proxy every single user's traffic and recompress it and save on bandwidth for them. So that's what they're competing against, is an entity that has almost unlimited server-side capabilities with Chrome, and that's just going to become more and more apparent as Chrome and Firefox develop. Well, another way that Mozilla is copying Google or you could say Firefox following in Chrome's footsteps, is that they might well start blocking some adverts. Yeah, it appears that Mozilla intends to add basic ad filtering capabilities to its Firefox browser later on this year. That would be at least according to a development roadmap. Over the next year or so, Firefox will take a stand against trafficking, intrusive ads, and, of course, dark patterns on the web, as they put it. Do you feel that they're a little bit late to the party on this one? Yes. And it's a little awkward. Like the language they're using here is a little suspicious. They're not using the term ad blocking. They're using the term ad filtering. And content blocking versus content filtering are two totally different things. Ad filtering makes it sound like somebody's going to be taking an active role in deciding what is a bad ad versus a good ad. Which is an almost impossible task to have a human in the loop. And even if you have an algorithm, that's not necessarily going to do a perfect job, is it? So the register tried to sort all of this out and they emailed the Firefox product manager and he wrote back. uh, And Peter said that the roadmap describes future plans, some of which are still in early development. So don't get too set on any of them. He says we are researching and in some cases developing various methods of blocking invasive forms of advertising. This includes autoplaying videos, in-content pop-ups, and a variety of other deceptive quote-unquote practices. While these methods are based on ad and content types, their final approach will be announced at a later date. And they expect to integrate the functionality directly into Firefox when they've decided on what it is they're going to do. Well, you would hope that Mozilla will be responsible with this and just block really nefarious stuff and let reasonable adverts through, but it does remain to be seen exactly how they handle it. Yeah, and what's the definition of a reasonable advert? Is it is my definition the same of Mozilla's? We'll just have to wait and see. And it's it's not the end of days yet. This is something they're going to be working out over perhaps the next year. 
Okay, so I've got several copies of the Bitcoin blockchain on various hard drives, and this week I started to think, hmm, maybe I should delete those. I mean, only if you don't want to be a pedophile. You're not a pedophile, are you, Joe? No, and I'm not a terrorist or whatever else is hiding in there. <laughs> yeah, this is based on a new research paper that's come out again, and it has done. <laughs> I laugh only because I covered this story when I was doing Plan B, and Plan B was before I ever launched Linux Unplugged. So this is an old story, but it keeps coming up, and people keep adding more junk to the blockchain. You see, the blockchain has this whole provision for adding arbitrary data. Imagine a contract. You're signing with somebody and you want to have specific details of the contract on there, like Joe will uh, not have any cats jumping on the recording equipment during the recordings of Linux Action News. Say we wanted to have like a, (laughs) I don't know where that would come from, but say we had like a contract where that was in place and we wanted that in the blockchain, you could add arbitrary text like that. And so researchers from, well, a lot of different places, but this is a new paper as available as a PDF have identified 1,600 files that have been added to the Bitcoin blockchain, 59 of which include links to unlawful images of child exploitation, politically sensitive content, and privacy violations. This is incredibly worrying. And I uh, genuinely am thinking about deleting the blockchain data that I've got because I just don't want to fall foul of the law. And okay, it's there's probably a defense there, but now people know more about this. And as you say, th- this was known before, but now it's resurfaced. People might be putting stuff in there just to troll people, although it is quite expensive to do that, isn't it? Yeah, there is a transaction fee potentially. Uh, I I do think people are doing this just to troll folks as well. Uh, all All the blockchain data... Think about this for a moment, and this is why Joe's worried. All blockchain data, if you have a full wallet, is downloaded and stored by every single user. And so in some countries, they could be liable for the content that's on their own hard drive. And it could be illegal content. Now, keep this in mind, though. The blockchain is a text ledger. So what you are getting at absolute best is encoded links to pornography. You're not getting the actual pornography in the blockchain. You're getting an encoded sequence of hex that you then have to extract and decode and reconstruct a link and then visit that link. You say that, but it may be possible to hide binaries in there if you really wanted to. Well, and there are services, I'll have one linked in the show notes, called Cryptography and Others that uh, essentially do the encoding and decoding for you and almost make it like a messaging service. In fact, uh, Cryptography will just have like some of the latest messages that have been added to the blockchain as arbitrary data, and you can just download them. But it does beg the question of how easy it would be for a government to put in stuff that is illegal so that they can then outlaw Bitcoin in that country. Ooh, that's proper bacon right there. I mean, we got to put all of this into context, right? So we're talking 1.4% of the roughly 251 million transactions as of this recording on the Bitcoin blockchain. So, I mean, we're talking a tiny amount. And then at that, it's encoded data that you have to implicitly decode and reassemble into a dirty link. I don't know really how liable anybody's going to be for that, but it does seem particularly spicy. It does seem like something that's going to get attention, and it could be something that regulators opt to hone into if they feel motivated. 
But you know, when reading about this, that 250 million figure really jumped out at me. That's all the Bitcoin transactions ever. How many Visa transactions happened during the recording of this show? Probably somewhere around 250 million, I would have thought. It really goes to show how far behind Bitcoin is in terms of actual transactions, doesn't it? Yeah, the scale of it. Um, now, as we record, I mean, it has gone up. Uh, uh, right now, if you go to blockchain.info, we're somewhere around 306 million transactions. But again, how many Visa transactions today happened? Or MasterCard or whatever? From what I understand, that's about how many transactions Visa has in a single day. Yeah, exactly. So the scale is just massively different. Yeah, but you're still a dirty bird, Joe, with all those files on your hard drive. You better start deleting those blockchains. Yeah, I'll get right on that. <laughs> In the meantime, maybe you could use your energy to go over to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe and get links to all of the ways to get this here show every single week. Yeah, and if you want to get in touch with us, go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact. And please consider supporting the entire network, our future plans, and more at patreon.com slash Signal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.